<laughs> uh, glad to be back with you again. Please turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And we will read verses 1 through 11. But before we do, we'll pray. And just to help us in our prayer, we'll consider Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, where we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that truth that you are the one who is seated in heaven, whose footstool is the earth. We know that you are great and greatly to be praised, that you are exalted above all, that you are the one who spoke and all came to be. You are the one who created all the things that are. So teach us as your people this day, as we turn to your word, to be humble and contrite in spirit and to tremble at your word. May we receive your word with meekness. May we be diligent to examine what you have written, and grant us by your Spirit the understanding we need to know your testimonies so that we would truly see you and be conformed into the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so the last time I spoke, I had us turn to verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1. And the main emphasis was looking at living a life worthy of the gospel, which is what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we looked at a number of things, but one of the things we saw was how to live a life worthy of the gospel does not mean that we earn the gospel. It does not mean we live the gospel, but instead it means that we respond to the gospel and we reflect the gospel. So in light of all that God has done for us, there's a way in which our lives should be impacted. And the way in which our lives should be impacted is shown for us in the way in which Christ lived and what he did for us. Today we turn to chapter 2, where Paul is continuing with these same themes of living a life worthy of the gospel. He's beginning to explain what that looks like in our everyday lives. And you can see... Well, you can't see because we haven't read it. (laughs) Let's read it, and then we'll come back. All right, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our focus will be on verses 5 through 11, but just as a way to kind of outline this, these verses we read, we could think about how Paul is describing here gospel benefits, gospel community, and then gospel example. In verse 1, you can see these gospel benefits. He's describing these are the, some of the things that God has given to us in Christ. Because, or if we have, received this free gift of salvation that God has given to us, these are some of the benefits He's bestowed on us. Verse 1, he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So, as God's people, God has comforted us. He speaks tenderly to us. He's lavished His great love upon us, and He's united, together by, uh, united us together by the Spirit. These are these benefits that we've received. And then he describes gospel community. In light of these benefits, once again, there's to be some impact in our lives. These benefits are to, to transform the way we live. So we respond to what God has given to us. We don't live in a certain way in order to earn these benefits, but rather we respond to these benefits that God has freely given to us. And what does he say? What, how are we to respond? What type of community is the gospel to produce? Verses 2 through 4, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So what type of community does the gospel produce? It produces one of unity and one of humility. He calls us to be a people who are united together, having the same mind, having the same love, having the same focus in life being those who give of, them, of themselves for the good of others. But it also produces those who walk in humility. What is humility? Not thinking necessarily less of ourselves, but rather, what does he say? It's not having a focus on yourself at all. To be a humble person is to be one who is not focused on self, but rather who seeks the good of others. That we do not seek to promote self or defend self, or serve self, but rather we seek the interests of others. We regard others as more significant than ourselves. And with this command, you just see one that is so, so practical, so applicable to all area of our lives. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what? This is just so contrary to the culture. Because what does our culture declare? 
Our great problem, our great need is to think more of ourselves, to think more highly of ourselves. But what is Paul saying here? Know that what our great need is actually to think less of ourselves, less about ourselves, to not think about ourselves at all, but to be focused on others. And then as I was self-righteously critiquing the culture, I thought, yet how often do I do the very same thing that I'm condemning in the culture? Sure, I may be able to stand up here and critique the culture and say, oh, how awful, they're all focused on themselves. They're all saying they need to stop, stop thinking so low of yourselves, but think more highly of yourselves. And yet, in our day-in and day-out lives, how often do we proclaim that very same truth in our heart? in the way in which we relate to other people, in the way in which we defend ourselves, in the way in which we seek to promote ourselves. So here is a command in which we need to, by God's grace, examine our lives and pray as David did in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to take this command and look at how does this work within the church? How does it work within our families, with our friends at work? How should this command be worked out in all areas of our lives? So there's gospel benefits and gospel community, but our focus today is on this gospel example. And if you look at verse 5, Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves..." which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have this mind. What mind is he talking about? That, that phrase seems to refer back to what he's just said about having this, this humble mind, this mind that's focused on others. But then it also propels us forward to think about Christ and to think about this perfect example he set. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have the ESV, you can see how it actually has a footnote which says, which was also in Christ Jesus. So in other words, this verse could either be saying, we've been given this mind in Christ, pointing to the fact how if we're in Christ, we're a new creation, we've been given new life, we've been transformed. Or it's saying that this is the mind that Christ had. Either way, either of these uh, phrases could translate this verse. And we see both of those things taught in other places of Scripture. We see it, Scripture affirm the fact that in Christ we have been born again, that we're no longer who we used to be, we no longer live in futility of mind, but we've learned Christ. We're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. But also we see what? That Christ is set forward as the perfect example. He's not just an example but he is the example of the perfect life. And that is where Paul now turns. He says, this is the mind we're to have. The mind which we've been given in Christ, the mind which Christ shows us. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 11. And we'll look at these verses under the three headings which you have in your bulletin of equal, empty, and exalted. And it wasn't any uh, brilliancy on my part. You can see all those three words right there in the text. You see in verse 6 how he talks about he had equality with God. Then verse 7, he emptied himself. And then verse 9, he highly exalted him. 
So who is this Christ that we're studying here? The one who was equal, the one who became empty, and the one who is now exalted above all. So we'll look at each of those, and then having looked at those, we'll come back to verse 5 and just remind ourselves of the context. Because it would be equal to get caught up in all of the wonderful theology here and miss the fact that this deep theology comes within this context of so practical commands. And it just shows us that what theology and application must always go together. We often want to separate them. We either emphasize the practical part or we emphasize the deep theology, but we need to hold both together. If we have theology without application, then James would say what? We're no better than demons. But if we have application without theology, then we're left with mere moralistic commands that none of us can keep. Because I doubt if many of us here did not already know this coming in. We did not already know that as God's people, we should be those who are not focused on ourselves, but focused on other people. But as we've already acknowledged, yet so often in our lives, we do not live this way. So what's our great need? To keep having this same command pounded into our head? Maybe, because we may forget it. But what we always need is to behold Christ. Every day we should ask ourselves this question, have I seen Jesus today? Have I beheld Him as the one who is equal, the one who is empty, the one who is exalted? Because it's in beholding Christ that we are conformed more and more into His image. So that will be our goal today is to behold Christ and then having beheld Him, we will come back and think about just briefly how each of these things relate. So equal, empty, and exalted. First, equal in verse 6. Paul says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So notice there, you can see, if you're looking at verse 6, he says, Jesus, who was he? He was in the form of God, and he had this equality with God. To be in the form of God meant that he had the very nature of God, that he actually existed as God. And because he had God's nature, what did that mean? It means, as he said, that he had equality with God. This is similar to what John says in John chapter 1. Where in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. If we were to read on, we would see how it becomes clear that this word is referring to Jesus. And what do we see about who Jesus is? We see that he was in the beginning. That Jesus never began to exist, but he has always been. In the beginning, at the start of all things, Jesus was there. He didn't begin, but he has always been. We see also that he says that the word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was with God, and yet Jesus was God. So there is distinction, and yet there's equality. Jesus is distinct from the Father and the Spirit, and yet He is equal to the Father and the Spirit. And because He is equal to God, 
Because he is God, what does that mean? It means that he is the one who is worthy of all worship and service, of all thanksgiving and honor and praise. He is the one who is worthy because he is exalted above all. You can think about Colossians in this regard. Colossians chapter 1, where Paul writes this. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth and that's Philippians. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what does he say about who Jesus is? He says that he is the one through whom all things were made. He is the one who, in whom all things hold together. He is the one who sustains every single thing. As Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who is before all things. Meaning he is greater than all things and also he existed before all things existed. And he is also the one who is above all things. So that is who this Christ is. This one who is equal with the Father. But if we go back to Philippians, what do we see in verse 6? We see that Paul's primary point is not merely to teach us about Jesus' greatness. Rather, Paul is reminding us of Jesus' supremacy, of Jesus' greatness, of Jesus' equality with God so that we would see the depth of His humility. So that we would see the depth to which He emptied Himself. And that's what he then goes on to describe in verses 7 and 8. So if you look, look there, he says, going back to verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus do? He who was in the form of God, he who had equality with God, what did he do? Paul says he didn't grasp that. Instead, he emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, at first glance, what does it sound like? Sounds like he's saying Jesus was equal with God. Jesus had the very nature of God, but he didn't hold on to that nature. Instead, he gave that up. He emptied himself of his divine nature. He ceased to be God. Now, what if I had said that's not what he seems to be saying, but I actually said that is what he's saying? Hopefully, everyone would stand up and object to that and then point to the Bible and say, no, that's not what he's saying. Because what? We could point to other passages in the Bible that clearly contradict that, that affirm the fact that Jesus did not cease to be God when he became man. But instead, he became the God-man. He became God dwelling among us as man. But we don't even have to look to other places in the Bible to see that, because Paul goes on to explain what he means. 
Notice verse 7, he says, but emptied himself. How? How, Paul? How did, how did Jesus empty himself? He says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So how did Jesus empty himself? He emptied himself by taking something to himself. So emptying himself doesn't mean that he ceased to be God, that he got rid of his divinity. Instead, it means what? What he's saying there. He took to himself the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. So Jesus did not cease to be God. Instead, he became man. So he emptied himself, not in the sense of getting rid of his deity, but in the sense of taking to himself humanity. He emptied himself by becoming man as God. What then does it mean that he didn't grasp equality with God? Since he didn't cease to be God, it cannot mean that he didn't grasp his, he didn't hold on to his divine nature. Instead, it must mean that he didn't, he didn't demand to be treated as he deserved. He didn't demand to be treated as he ought to have been treated as God. And you can see, again, the ESV has a footnote, if you have the English Standard Version, on verse 6, down at the bottom, it says, for grasp, it says, or a thing to be held onto for one's advantage. So he didn't grasp his, his equality with God in the sense that he used it for his own advantage. Instead, he said, though I... Though I deserve to be treated in this way, I'm not going to be regarded in that way. Instead, I'm going to become a servant. I'm going to be born as man. Because as we already said, what does Jesus deserve as God? He deserves all service. He deserves all worship, all praise and honor. But did he receive that when he came and dwelt among us? He didn't. How did he come? Paul says he came as a servant, which is what Jesus says in, in Mark 10, 45, that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus deserves to be worshipped, but he was despised. Jesus deserves all thanksgiving, but he was mocked. Jesus deserves all honor, but he was rejected. And if we can picture that in our mind. Here is God, Jesus, coming to dwell among us as man, as a servant. And he was despised. He was rejected. He was mocked. He was not in any way glorified. He emptied himself of all of that. But not only did he empty himself by becoming man, he went one step further. And that's what Paul says in verse 8, in being found in human form, so as, as man, as the one who is fully God, fully man, what did he then do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here, Jesus not only becomes man, but he goes one step further in dying the death upon a cross. This death of torment, this death of utter shame. But it wasn't just the physical pain that Jesus bore. Instead, he bore the very wrath of God for us. And all of this should, should make us think about 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's contemplating having to go to the cross, and he prays to his Father, and what does he say? He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we can see there what? We can see Jesus' humble obedience. Though he did not desire, though he, he did not long to suffer God's wrath, what was he willing to do? How did he pray? He said, Father, not what I want, but what you want. He humbly obeyed the Father. And we see as well, what is he going to, to bear? He speaks of this cup, which is this biblical metaphor for for receiving God's wrath. God's wrath is often pictured as this cup which is being poured out or which must be drunk. And Jesus is saying, I I will drink this cup if there's no other way. Father, I will do this if that is what you will. So we see his humble obedience to bear the very wrath of God. So here then is the extent to which Jesus humbled himself. Not just in being born as a man, not just being born into this, this poor, ordinary family, not just in, in being subjected to the law and facing all of our trials and temptations and struggles, not just in having to live that life of pain, but then going to the cross to die this torment of death and then to bear the very wrath of God. So who is this Christ that we worship? He is the one who was equal. He is the one who became empty. But then there's one more step, and that's what Paul then goes on to say. Having been equal, having become empty, he then has become exalted. So look now at verses 9 through 11. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as a result of emptying himself, the Father has given Jesus the highest place, and he's given him the highest name. And this is just what... Paul wrote to the Ephesians as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, within this context in which he's praying for them to know the great power that God has given to them, he says this, Ephesians 1 verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We'll just finish it. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Where is that? Notice how Paul says it's not just above, but it is far above. Far above what? 
all rule and authority and power and dominion. So any type of authority, any type of rule that we can think of, Jesus is not just above that, he is far above it. So I wrote down just some, you think about the United States or Russia or North Korea or demonic forces or this talk of this global worldwide government or finally someone discovers these aliens and there's this great authority. Where will Jesus still be? Not just above it, right? But far above it. Anything we can imagine taking place in this world, Jesus is far above that authority. That is where Jesus is. What name does Jesus have? He has the name that that is above every name that now is or every name that could possibly be. And... Often this name is taken actually to be Jesus. That is this name above all names. But it seems better to understand it. This name that is above all names is the name of Lord. This great confession of the church in this this name which all will confess in the end. So Jesus is this one who is exalted far above all, who's been given this name above every name. Now, why, why did the Father give the, these things to Jesus? Why did he give him this position and this name? That's what Paul writes in verses 10 and 11. He's bestowed this upon him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there is coming a day when, because of who Jesus is, all of creation will be subjected to Him. Every single knee will bow before Him, will bow in submission to His Lordship, and with their tongues will confess that. No matter how great a person may be in this life, no matter how influential, no matter how rich, no matter how powerful no matter how beautiful every single person will bow before Christ and you can think about all the presidents about president biden and and uh, president trump and vladimir putin and then all the really rich people elon musk and bill gates and then the the famous people Uh, LeBron James and Adele and any other name we want to set forth. These people who are so above us in this life and we ought to rightly recognize the position they have and the, the influence they hold. But on that day, where will they be? They will be side by side with the most unknown, poorest people in this world. You think about uh, a beggar or children living on the streets in Africa and Elon Musk, where will they be? Side by side before Christ. Doing what? Bowing and acknowledgement of his lordship. But what we learn from other places in the Bible is that 
on that day, there will be two types of bowing and there will be two types of confessing. One hint of this is in 2 Thessalonians, where Paul writes of, of Christ's return, and this is what he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And here we go. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So he says what? A day is coming when Christ will return. And on that day, there will be two, gr- two groups of people. There will be those upon whom Christ will inflict vengeance, who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from God's presence. But there will also be those who, when they see Christ, will will marvel at Him, will rejoice at Him, will delight at the fact that He has finally come. All people will bow. All people will confess. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ in this life, who have acknowledged His Lordship now, our bowing and our confessing will be one of joyful worship as we finally behold our King in all of His beauty. But for those who continue to reject Christ in this life, who die in their sins, then their bowing and their confessing will be one of conquered submission, whom Christ will crush and then condemn forever to hell. He will be shown to be Lord. Some will see Him as Lord joyfully. Others will cower before Him in utter terror. And in light of that fact, there may be some here today who, who in hearing this, are thinking, really? You actually believe that? You actually believe that Christ is is Lord of all, where, where is this promise of His coming again? You know, you've been saying Jesus is coming back. People were saying that when the Bible was being written, and here you are 2,000 years more, and still you're saying that. Where's, where's this evidence that He's Lord? Where's this evidence that He's coming back? And what would be God's answer to that? Well, Paul actually spoke to this when he was in Athens before these great philosophers. And he gives this, this defense of, of Christ before them. And how does he conclude it in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31? He says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. But he doesn't stop there. Then he says this, And of this he has given assurance, or he has given proof. How? 
by raising him from the dead. What does Paul say? He says, if you want to know that Christ is going to come back, that he is going to judge the world, where should you look? He says, look to the resurrection. Look to this historical event, this literal historical event that can be examined, that you can reason about. And he says, what? If that happened, and it did, then you can know this will happen. And so if you're here today and this whole Christianity thing, it's just kind of, you know, I come here, my parents bring me, or um, my boyfriend or girlfriend brought me, but it's just kind of, I'm just trying to make it through. And you know, you, you man are just kind of bumbling along up there, and just can you stop now, because <laughs> we've been here a long time. What, what would God's response be to you? He would say, stop this, stop this wishy-washiness. Stop this indifference towards Christ. Stop this just laid back, yeah, I come, but you know, yeah, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, but it doesn't really impact my life. There's a lot more interesting things on Instagram and on, and on TV. And What would God say? He would say, look at the evidence. Look at the resurrection. Examine this event and see that it actually happened. And because it actually happened, Christ really is now Lord of all. And He really will return again to judge the living and the dead. And may God, as His people, give us grace to really see that more and more. There may be others as well who, who in hearing all of this, maybe up until this point you have have been living in rejection of Christ, have been living in rebellion to Him, but in, in hearing God's Word today, you, you see that it really is the case that Jesus really is Lord of all. Then what should you do? Realize that this day has not yet come. This day when, if you had died in your sins, you would have stood before Christ in other terror, but as of this moment, that day has not yet come. So now still is the favorable time. Now still is the day of salvation. And so Christ's word to you would be what? To, to trust in Him. To, to turn from your sins. To submit to Him as Lord. To believe in Him as the only one who can save you. And in so doing, what will happen? You will be changed from one who would have cowered before Him in fear. And instead, who on that day will behold Him. And in His presence, you will find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Who then is this Christ that we worship? He is the one who was, from all of eternity, equal with the Father, who emptied Himself by becoming the God-man and dying upon the cross. And He is the one who is now exalted above all. Now, as we said at the beginning, we just want to briefly now look at how do each of these things connect to verse 5? How does this deep, wondrous theology connect to the, the so practical commands of verses 3 and 4? Or we might think of it in a different way. Tonight, when your baby wakes up and needs his or her diaper changed, how does Jesus being equal, empty, and exalted relate to that? Or when you come home from work tomorrow and your family doesn't greet you by 
thanks for working all day. Take the day off. Here's, here's the remote. Here's some, here's some snacks. Just, just relax and kick back. When that doesn't happen, as it probably won't, how does, how does Jesus being equal, empty, and exalted connect to that? How does it connect to the fact that we have this big house and we hear of someone who needs some help and could really use a place to stay? Or when our friend slanders us on Facebook? How does this deep theology connect to those day in and day out circumstances of our lives? Because that's what Paul does, right? He gives us these commands. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then where does he go? Christ was God from all of eternity. And we might say, Paul, aren't you being a little theological? We were just talking about these, these seemingly insignificant events. And then here you go, describing the wonders of who Christ is. But that is what we must do. We must meld... Uh, uh, connect this deep theology with this, this day-in and day-out realities of our lives. So what does it look like? We need to be thinking about examining in our lives what are we thinking about and what are we beholding. When those things take place, our baby wakes up, our friend slanders us, we hear of this need, what is going on in our thoughts? What do we need to be thinking? We need to be thinking about how Christ was equal Christ was emptied, and Christ is now exalted. What might that look like? The fact that Christ was equal shows us what? Jesus was equal with God, and the reality is what? We are not. Jesus did not grasp equality with God. He did not demand to be treated as he ought to have been treated. And yet, what do we do? We who are created in God's image and so have inherent value, and yet who are also sinners deserving nothing but hell, we cling so tightly to what we believe to be our rights, what we believe to be our due. And so imagine you're laying in bed, your baby's crying, the diaper needs to be changed, your spouse is sleeping, and what do you pretend to do? Pretend to sleep. And you kind of nudge them <laughs> to get them to wake up, but you're still sleeping. And then so they get up and go. What should be going on in your head? Think about Christ. Think about Him in heaven, not grasping that, but saying, I'm going to humble myself and come to this earth. And then how much that will humble us to realize. And yet here I am saying, what? I need my sleep because I have to get up tomorrow morning and go to work. How about Jesus being emptied? What should that help us to see? So often we refuse to serve people because of how they treat us. Maybe someone's ungrateful, they're demanding, they just keep nagging at us. And so what is our tendency to become defensive and to think, I'm not going to serve them, they don't deserve this. And yet what did Christ do? He emptied himself to death on a cross for his enemies. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, how does Jesus being exalted after all of that connect to having this mind among ourselves? It reminds us that the path to greatness comes through humility that Jesus shows us this biblical principle that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And considering all these things, at times it can be so scary, it can be, it can be so difficult, but what do we do? We entrust ourselves, just as Jesus did, to the Father who judges justly. We trust that as we humble ourselves before God's mighty hand, He will exalt us at the proper time. And in all of this, as we seek to renew our minds in that way, may God give us the grace to behold more and more our wonderful Christ, who was equal with the Father from all of eternity, who emptied Himself to death on a cross, and who is now exalted above all. And may we keep our eyes upon Him, and one day we will see Him face to face. So Jesus is equal, He became empty, and He is now exalted. And let's pray together. Father, it is our great desire to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, but how often we fall short. Thank you that with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. May you grant us grace by your Spirit, grant us the understanding we need to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. Remind us of how Christ was equal with you, how he emptied himself, how he is now exalted above all, so that we might walk in the same way in our everyday lives, so that you would be glorified in us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.